Now, before we look into our subject this morning, let's dismiss our older children to their learning center. So children ages kindergarten through fifth grade, you have teachers waiting for you in the education center right now. Again, good morning. I'm really glad that you're here. We are taking in a brand new series for the rest of December called Imagine Christmas. And um, it's a series that's going to culminate at the end or after Christmas on December 27th with our grand 20th anniversary celebration brunch. So I hope you've all signed up for that. We're going to have a great time with that. We're celebrating 20 years as a church and God's mission and calling for us as a church to be a church for the unchurched, to be a safe place for every seeker in Snohomish County to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, to be a place that is focused relentlessly on three core purposes, to love God, to love the church that is one another, and to love lost people. And so that's kind of what we've been all about. And um, this month, what we're going to do is we're going to smash together Christmas and AC3. And so you might say, well, what do these two things have in common specifically? You know, I mean, obviously we're Christians here, and Christians celebrate Christmas, and so it has that in common. But specifically, what does this church have to do with Christmas? Well, I hope you're going to find out a lot. And specifically, what God did at Christmas, it has always been our vision and calling as a church to do in the world. So we're going to outline that in the next couple of weeks. This week, we imagine God with us. And that's what we've been soaking in for the last 30 minutes. Now, to do this, uh, we're going to look to a book in the Bible that is uh, not as read as often as I think it should be in the Christian church. It's tucked away in the back of your Bible. And you might not associate it with Christmas. When you think Christmas, you think Luke 2 and the account of the shepherds. You think Matthew 2 and the account of the wise men. But you do not think Hebrews. Hebrews there at the end of your New Testament. But I want to go to Hebrews this morning, and I want to pull out four ideas Two sets of two contrasting values that tell us simultaneously both what Christmas is and what God has called our church to be. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. And those two sets of contrasting values are doctrinal purity, cultural relevance, and reaching and teaching. And that's all been very core to who Allen Creek has been. So let's begin by, first of all, introducing you to the audience. Who was the letter of Hebrews written to? When you can understand that, then you can begin to understand the gist and the importance of the content of the letter. So just think about it for a second. Who do you think the audience was that the letter of Hebrews was written to? You can guess three times. The first two don't count, as my mom used to say. It was written to, surprise, Hebrews. That's right, to Hebrews. But let's talk about that for a second because um, it's interesting to think that these were Hebrew Christians. Now, a lot of you know that the first Christians were all Jewish, but some of you have a problem. You think, well, how can a Jew also be a Christian? Don't, aren't these two separate religions? But if you properly understand Christianity, you know that Christianity has always seen itself as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants. Just has seen itself that way all along. So if you were a first century Jew and Jesus come along and he's teaching and preaching. You didn't hear the message and the calling of Jesus as a call to repudiate your faith. Here's Jesus, repudiate Moses. That's not what you heard. No, Jesus was a call to embrace all that your faith had been longing for. In fact, the prophetic longings are what are some of the most often quoted scriptures at Christmas time, because it's those that fully anticipate the Christ event, the incarnation, which we're going to talk about today. And all of that does is show that the early Jewish Christians did not think that they had left the faith. What they thought was that they had seen their faith in Jesus fulfilled. 
So, for example, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to it. This is 700 years before Jesus. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you who will be ruler over my people Israel. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. So you, these are the things you've been baked in as a Jew, first century. Now let's imagine that's where we live. We live in Palestine in the first century, and we are one of those Jews who saw Jesus as the fulfillment of all of our messianic hopes by coming and preaching and teaching and healing and finally by convincing the world that he had risen from the dead. So here's you, and let's say you're among the number that just responded to that with joy. And there you were, experiencing the fulfillment of all your hopes. You're still a Hebrew, but you're now a follower of the way. That's what they would have called you. They didn't call you a Christian not right away. Initially, they just called you a follower of the way, or a disciple, or a brother. That's what they would call you. Only later did they start calling you Christians. So there you are, a follower of the way. Now time has passed, okay? Let's say it's been about 30, 40 years since Jesus walked and talked among us. And now, you, follower of the way, are coming under intense pressure. From who? From your Jewish brothers and sisters. From the other Jews around you in the larger Palestinian community because they, by and large, have missed the Jesus boat. They do not consider Jesus to be the fulfillment of their messianic hopes, and so they consider you, a follower of the way, to be a, a heretic and a dangerous one at that. And so everyone in that Jewish Christian community would have known someone, or who might have been themselves, someone who had um, had their homes plundered, would have uh, been drugged before a religious council. Some had been publicly ridiculed. Others had been physically assaulted. And some, yes, had even been killed simply because they held to Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. That's your life. That's your world. And for 30 or 40 years, you've lived like that. Now, thinking about those early Jewish Christians under intense pressure and persecution, one cannot help but draw their minds to the present. And in our world, we are thinking more and more about how our world is becoming more hostile to Christians. Certainly around the world, ISIS is on the news every night, and also now in the Christian West. And that's what's most shocking. I think most disturbing to Christians in our community is that, hey, isn't this the Christian West, quote-unquote? And yet, even here, we are experiencing intense pressure. Islamic terrorism, for all of its political uh, ramifications, we understand it's nothing more than a campaign to kill Christians. That's what it is. And closer to home in October, uh, you remember this, witnesses say that in Oregon, at uh, the Umpqua Community College Center, the shooter asked people if they were Christians, and if they responded yes, he shot them. Those weren't the only people that he shot, but he singled them out. So we're here. We're experiencing this. Now, of course, the chances are you're never going to be faced with that kind of terrible choice. But surely we do live in a time when the pressures of simply being a Christian are mounting. What does it look like for you? Well, one five-hour trip through social media will show it off, won't it? Name-calling and deliberate misunderstanding of your positions as a Christian. Marginalization, ridicule, and maybe in our lifetime, increasingly, violence. And AC3, let's just be real clear about this. People are leaving the faith over this. Pressure is on, people are leaving the faith. And Jesus said, there would come a day when the, quote, love of most would grow cold. 
And I sometimes wonder if we aren't living in that day when the hits are too many, the attacks on faith are too relentless, the effort to maintain spiritual devotion too much, the idea of being a separate as a weirdo in the culture is too, too much, the pushback against everyone's misconceptions is just too tiring. Well, if you can relate to that, if you can relate to that sort of spiritual fatigue, if you've ever felt your faith slipping in this post-Christian world, then the letter of Hebrews was written to you. It was written to you. So what does the author of that beautiful letter write to Christians who are on the edge of giving up? What's the message? Is the message, you read Hebrews, all 13 chapters, and you go, oh, the message is buck up. The message is get tougher. The message is pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And that's not really the message, although there is a stern warning throughout the letter. No, the basic message is put your eyes on Christ. You can't read Hebrews, not even two chapters in, and not have Jesus dominate your horizon. You read the letter, and suddenly Christ is everything. I mean, that's what the whole letter is. It's shouting out his person, his work, his love, his judgment, his uh, truth, his care, his identity. And so, to see that, once you have fixed your eyes on Christ, that's when you begin to see Christmas all through the letter. And we're going to pull it out four different places today where you see Christmas in Hebrews. First, as we imagine his superiority. These are the first words in the letter. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers, that is the Jewish fathers, by the prophets at different times and in different places. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now catch the words. Whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe... He is the radiance of his glory, the exact expression of his nature, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and so he became higher in rank than the angels, just as his name he inherited is superior to theirs. Now, if you bake on that for a couple minutes, that's just a wow. That's a Okay, so let's, let's just marinate in this, the amazing superiority of Christ. Now, if you're a Jew, again, going back to your initial audience, uh, you were kind of, you had built into you the great differentness between God and people. That was hammered into you through the entire New Te Old Testament period, the otherness of God. And by the way, another word for other is holy. So when the Bible says God is holy and you should be holy, that's basically baking into you the idea, God is not like you. He's different from you. And you, God is different. You need to be different. So the otherness of God was sort of deeply a part of your Jewish understanding. So it's quite possible in the first century, as we're trying to figure out what the, the followers of the way, uh, how they fit into the old uh, understandings, it's quite possible that under pressure from others, some started to think of Jesus as something... Other than a man, because no one thought that someone so great could be a mere man, but yet not quite God, right? Because God was so other. And how could someone who walked among us really be that, the great Almighty? How could that possibly be? So perhaps you had many kind of pulling back from that full understanding of Jesus, saying, well, maybe he was an angel. 
That's why the writer refers to angels here and the name of Jesus as opposed to angels. Maybe he was a great angel, maybe even created by God for his very special purpose, very wonderful, exalted, powerful, preexistent, but not God himself, not himself divine. Now, to counter this, the writer says, no, you understand, Jesus came preaching, the Father and I are one. So what does he do to convince them that Christ must be fully divine? He turns to the scripture, but he, he doesn't turn to the Old Testament or the New Testament. It hasn't, most of it, the, the gospels hadn't been written yet. He turns instead to the Old Testament, specifically Psalm chapter 2. And he says, this is the very next verse, Hebrews 1 verse 5. You are my son, this is God speaking, today I have begotten you. And when God was about to send his firstborn son into the world, he said, all of God's angels must worship him. And who is the only one worthy of worship? This is the beginning, AC3, of Christmas in Hebrews. Sending his firstborn, the only begotten, into the world. There's Christmas in Hebrews. But to get it, first of all, we're going to have to clear up two words. Because there's great misunderstanding about two words, begotten and firstborn. Shall we? Let's talk about those. Because those two terms bring to mind the birth of a child and therefore the beginning of something. And maybe Jesus lesser than in this created being and all that. And so that's why it's suggested that Jesus must be some kind of maybe exalted but created being. And whole sects of Christianity have adopted that view. But that can't be what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. No, why not? Because, first of all, the author is writing to combat the idea that maybe Jesus is just an angel. So that can't be he's promoting the idea that Jesus is some exalted, created thing because he's countering that very idea. That can't be what firstborn or what begotten means. So secondly, we must simply understand what those words mean in context and as are used throughout the Scripture. Begotten is used as a contrast between the two words begotten versus the word made. A man begets what is like him. A man makes what is not like him. See? So a man begets a son. A man makes a painting or a house. And so to use the word begotten is the opposite of saying that Christ was created or had a beginning. It means he is of the same stuff as the Father. That's what that word means, begotten, not made. Then you have this word firstborn, right? In that that indicates preeminence of rank, not chronological origin, as that word is used continually throughout the Bible. In ancient times, you have to understand the firstborn son was a family member who had rights and privileges that all the other children did not have. Utterly unique was the firstborn. So the firstborn was uniquely the father's heir. The firstborn was uniquely the father's representative. So the emphasis in using the word has nothing to do with a beginning for the son, but rather about his rank, his responsibility, his rights, and his reflection of the father, firstborn. So all of this puts a question in front of you, and I'll pose it to you now. How high is your view of Christ? You need to settle that. How high is your view of Christ? Lots of people think Christ was a really cool dude. But cool dude is not this, right? Cool dude is way below this. Even angel is way below this, right? You have to clarify this. What do you believe? Because what Jesus revealed, what he said about himself, and what the apostles would later teach, is that Jesus is something more than a man, more than just a mere teacher, 
He has something utterly unique. So in this skeptical world that presses you for compromise on every side, right, that pulls you into its syncretistic soup, that tries to destroy any unique place that Jesus could hold in your heart or in this world of competing gods, in that world, Hebrews is calling you to imagine Christmas as the descent of Jesus from the very top. The descent can't, can't come from a higher position because he's come from the very top. You don't get higher than God. And Paul will agree with this. He will say in his own Christmas passage, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, because by him everything was created, in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dom- dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. I mean, dude, he's lost restraint. We're talking about a man who walked and talked on the earth, but that's the description of his identity. And so AC3, if all things were made through him, clearly he is not one of the all things. If all things were created through him, he is not one of the created things. And you notice the great lengths to which Paul goes to 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 ensure that all the created things is really all, that all means all. Invisible, visible, height, depth, dominions, powers, invisible, the whole thing. So AC3, if this is true, imagine what this means. I mean, it just simply means what Christians have said it means about Jesus, that Jesus is fully divine. Jesus is God. And we teach this in foundation. Some of you, you can still check this out. I hope that at some point in your discipling experience, you do uh, go through foundations because we need to have a grounding as followers of Jesus in the basic ideas of, of what our faith has taught us and what Jesus has said about himself. Foundations kind of goes through this and many other core doctrines. Uh, it goes on on Sundays at 9. You can go there and then come to this service if you like. So how does the superiority of Christ relate to AC3's history? Because I said it was a smash-up, right, between Christmas and AC3 in our church, in our DNA. Well, from the very beginning, AC3 has wanted to be open to change. We were ready to change from the very beginning. Change in what? Change in how we do church, a change in leaving behind crusty forms and stale traditions and outmoded ways of communicating and language that doesn't work. But there is something that we have never wanted to change. And that is this, the scandal of Christian uniqueness. We've never wanted to change that, never. Cultural relevance, we said, but doctrinal purity. And being doctrinally pure means we never desire to change how Jesus understood himself and how the first apostles preached him to the world, which was as the word, the image of the invisible God. Never wanted to change that. Never felt that needed to be changed. Never wanted to adjust that for compatibility with modern sensibilities. But, oh, man, there's a lot of people who are experiencing the pressure to do exactly that. In our world that wants all religions to be the same, all ways to God to be equally valid, and, oh, by the way, the Roman Empire was just exactly like that. The pantheon of Roman gods was fine to invite you into their little eclectic community just as long as you agreed that your God was just right on even par with everybody else's. So the Christians came into unique trouble in the Roman Empire because Jesus was king, they preached. And they said, whoa, Caesar is king. And so the Christians were by the thousands fed to lions. And we now live in this same era where we have the pressure 
And the pressure is uh, to, to bend on this one thing, that our Christ is unique. And at AC3, doctrinally pure means we've never bent on this one. Never. While we always want to be a safe place, we knew that the doctrinally pure message of Jesus' uniqueness would never be popular. But you know what? We're not embarrassed by that. In fact, we're energized by that because it means we've got a message. I mean, that means that there's some urgency because being doctrinally pure means that Jesus is not just another cool teacher. Take him or leave him. It means that Jesus is true for everybody. If everything Hebrews is saying about him is true, that means he's everybody's God because he's the creator of everything and all things were brought into being by him and through him and for him. And he's true for everybody. And that energizes us. And so our message has never been, everything is fine, keep your status quo. That's never been our message. No, if Jesus is who Hebrews says he is, then he is true for everyone, and that brings urgency, and AC3 has lived with that kind of urgency for 20 years. If Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, (laughs) we can't be silent about that. Because it means that there's something there for everyone. Jesus is everyone. Or maybe we should say it like this. Everyone is Jesus. Jesus's belongs to him. We can't be silent, and maybe this brings some unpopularity, but you know what it also does for people under pressure of persecution? It brings a reason to persevere because you've attached your hand to the coattails of the one, capital O. And so if you're under some pressure, just remind yourself that you are followers of the one, the one. In fact, Jesus had this moment in John chapter 6. Some of you remember this story? So there he is, and and he's saying some things that could only make sense if he was who he said he was, the Word, one with the Father, right? Because he starts saying really weird stuff. He says, you're not going to have life unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, John chapter (laughs) 6. And that's right about when thousands of people who thought he was a really cool teacher said, and this is where I get off the Jesus train right here. Let me just step off the Jesus train. You can keep on going because this has just got too weird for me. And so Jesus, at that moment, when he's done teaching that he is uniquely the way to life, that's really the message. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. He turns to his disciples and he says, what about you? Are, are you leaving too? Are you leaving under pressure to conform to the idea that everything is all the same and the the stress of the uniqueness of following a guy like me. And Peter, speaking for the 12, says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So you see, in the uniqueness of Jesus, also the reason to hang on when it gets troubling, when pressure comes. His superiority is a reason to hang on because through Christ you have found life, the one. But now let's move to the second thing. Imagine his incarnation, and here we really get to Christmas, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. So there's Christmas again. The Son became flesh and blood. He entered the world as a man. Now as soon as you agree to that, here's a huge problem. Once you say Jesus is God, but now how can the infinite God inhabit human skin? How can that happen? 
How do you smash those two things together? These were perplexing questions, not just for you, but for Christians for hundreds of years. While accepting Jesus and experiencing amazing life in his name, and the church was growing by leaps and bounds because Jesus' name brought freedom and health and life and the whole thing, they were still perplexed and worked it out amongst themselves of what, how could God and man merge? And so they kind of rallied back and forth on, on how they wanted to settle that. Was it like um, uh, there was like sort of a divine son and he just sort of appeared to be in a human skin? Or uh, was there an actual human and God just sort of like hovered over him for a while and then left him? And, the, and they sort of debated whether maybe there was two natures that kind of were schizophrenic together, whatever. They, they really worked this one out, friends. It, 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 it took a lot of debate and and um, wrangling with this, but it was only after the Council of Chalcedon in 451 that the church kind of established, okay, look, here's the biblical data, and here are the bumpers, okay? And in between these two, there's a lot of mystery, but here are the bumpers. They said, Jesus has to be fully God and fully man to really appreciate everything the Scripture has told us, but he is one person. And so they wrote a creed, and to this day, it stands as sort of a biblical position and incredibly epic, listen to it. We confess... One and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, there's that word again, to be acknowledged in two natures and concurring in one person, not divided or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. And I've, only, I've curtailed it. I mean, they go on and on and on with sort of an epic redundancy to establish this amazing idea. And so while it defines the idea that the incarnation did fuse a divine nature with a human nature into one person, it still really didn't answer the how question. How do you get that done? And I don't know that we'll ever get an answer to that question or a better answer maybe than Paul, who will give it to us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, his own answer in his own another Christmas passage, where he says, rather than clinging to his rights as God, it says, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking the likeness of men. The Greek word here, the key one, is kenosis, which means to empty. He emptied himself. To be incarnated then, the eternal son had to be emptied of some divine prerogatives. And now that, doesn't that just bump up your, what does that mean? To be emptied. The eternal God, imagine him, emptied. C.S. Lewis just invites you every Christmas to just marinate on the mystery of kenosis, the emptying. And here's what he says. The second person in God, the Son, became human himself, was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of a particular height, with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stones. He's saying he's a man, 46 chromosomes, people. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. And if you want to get the hang of it, think how would you like to become a slug or a crab? So now again, what's the connection to AC3? This beautiful piece of the incarnation. Well, how is Jesus' incarnation like our church? I'll tell you, because our, the incarnation was God coming near despite darkness and brokenness. And AC3's heart has always been to get up near a lost and broken world. Doctrinally pure, culturally relevant. Engage. And that's our topic for next week, so I'm not going to spend any more time now. But after we've considered the how of the incarnation, we should be awed 
awed by the why. And we get to that in imagining his redemption. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God, and then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. So ask yourself the question, why? Why was this necessary? Why was it necessary for the second person in God to descend and demote and divest himself of divine privilege and power? Why? Because only by taking on a human nature could he conquer death and show us the life that he alone can give and release us from the fear of death, which, I don't know if you've noticed, is universal. Have you thought about dying this week? How often do you think about dying? Some of you think about dying a lot. Some of you, it just doesn't even enter your mind. You're just too busy, worried about living. Mostly, that's the way I tend to approach things. I'm too busy living to worry much about dying, and yet... The statistics are holding really steady on this one. About one in every one person dies. That's what they say. That's right. So it's coming. It's coming for you. It's coming for you. So do you ever think about it? Because it's going to happen. And there is a universal fear that comes on us when we think about it. Every person around the world, from Timbuktu to downtown Manhattan, experiences fear. So it's fascinating when you think about that for a bit. And I forced myself this week to think about it. I, th I thought, man, what if I, what if I had death coming on me by slow disease and, and deterioration? And I imagined, you know, the life being sucked out of my body over months and maybe years and the, the dread that that would put on my soul. I thought about maybe being attacked and having my life snuffed out in an instant by someone just killing me. And I thought about that, the terror that would come on me in the moment just before so I thought about all these things, right? And I thought, yeah, death really presses upon us. What comes next? It's terrifying. And you know, the Hebrews, I bet you they were thinking about death a lot. That first century Christian community was under threat all the time. Think about your friends in Pakistan. A lot of you have friends in Pakistan. Now, you friended our ministry partner, Rashid, in Pakistan. He's under threat of death all the time, all the time. Imagine what that would be like. I bet you the Hebrews were like that. But guess what? The way they approached the prospect of death wasn't anything like how their Roman neighbors were doing it. We know enough about Roman religious culture to know that they lived in almost constant terror, dread over oncoming death. Death was the inevitable doom for the Roman. The, the inevitable uh, demise, a door beyond which was only blackness and no hope. Beyond death, there was no personal survival in Roman polytheism. You maybe hoped to have someone honor you after you died. That's why rich Romans built stuff. And why did they build stuff? Because they were so nice. Like they built baths, public baths and stuff like that and put their name on them. Why? It was for eternity so that they could, be, so they could live forever. That's why they did it. That was the only hope they had to live beyond death. Beyond it, it was just blackness and a pitiless end. You know what's ironic about this is that your unchurched neighbor believes in heaven. 
Absolutely. I mean, you go on Facebook, right, and everybody's posting memes about heaven. Heaven is awesome, and isn't heaven really cool? Without ever realizing that Jesus introduced us to the idea, as if it just sort of came out of left field, as if it's sort of like an instinct. Uh, For it was Jesus who first said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. John chapter 11, verse 25 through 26. And before that, you know, the ominous prospect of Sheol. Even the Jews had no concept. What would happen? Darkness, darkness, Hades. That's all they had before that. I'm so surprised by people who trust Jesus when he says, John chapter 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. But they do not trust Jesus when two verses later he says, and here's the way to the Father's house. I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Father's house, thumbs up. Jesus, the way to the Father's house, thumbs down. I mean, that just blows me away. I, I taught on this at a funeral yesterday, and I asked people to imagine, okay, imagine me. I'm from Canada, right? And uh, we're up there in the great white north, and imagine I have no conception of America or Rhodes or California or Los Angeles or Disneyland. I have no idea about any of that stuff. We're complete ignoramuses, which is not a stretch. Okay, so, all right, so, so imagine us up there, right? And we come to the border, and then someone at the border says, hey, it's America. And on, in America, we have the happiest place on earth. You do? Yes. It's in Los Angeles, in California, in a place called Disneyland. And before you even get it out of your mouth, so excited about this, but before you even get it before you even get it out of your mouth, I've got on my dog sled, and boom, I'm by you, right? I'm just gone. I said, where are you going? I'm going to the happiest place on earth. But wait a minute, you don't know how to get there. I'm the one who told you about the happiest place on earth, and you're not going to trust me how to get there, the roadmap. Does this make any sense? Of course it does in some sense. It does. Because everyone wants to believe that the Father's house has many rooms, but not everyone wants to believe that Jesus is the way the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father's house except through him. So that is the reason. But it, it's not logical. It doesn't make sense that you would trust him for the destination, but not the roadmap. And so that brings us to the second couplet connection between Christmas and AC3's mission. We've always said that we're about, we're about reaching and teaching. Our mission has these two sorts of twofold emphasis. And the first half of that reaching involves communicating the life-giving Fear of death abolishing good news. See, we have something, AC3, everyone wants. It's universal. You don't have to go anywhere except to meet the very next person that comes in front of your view to find someone who can experience the fear of dying. Everybody experiences it. It's a universal fear. And we have something everyone wants, AC3. How to not be afraid to die. We have that. It's a beautiful gift, and we are reaching out to the world with it. And so until the promise of resurrection comes to you, you understand it's universal that death is a terror-inducing reality. And the only reason people aren't stricken with it is because they put it aside. They push it out of their minds as much as they can. Just fill my life up with busyness and stuff, and I won't have to think that I am going to die. And until the life of Christ comes into you, until you understand that through him you can't really die, that death is merely a door, until that day, 
Death looms as an imposing wall of despair. The honest atheists always realize that that's all that materialism can offer you. No gods, no supernatural phenomena, no ultimate foundation for good or evil, no meaning in life, no life after death. That has to be what that means. And Bertrand Russell would acknowledge and say, the, uh, one of the old atheists, as they call them, Brief and powerless is man's life, he said. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. And Jesus rescued us from that worldview. Jesus rescued us from that worldview when he rose from the dead, destroying death. But Hebrews is telling us he couldn't do that. He couldn't rise from the dead and show that death can be conquered, that there could be life after death until he himself died. And he himself could not die unless he first came to us as a fragile little baby. So that is the hope AC3 has been holding out. And we've been holding that out, reaching out to seekers for 20 years with that good news, saying, because Jesus was born a man, you can live again. Because Jesus was born a man, your sin debt has been paid by sacrifice and the terror of judgment is past. Because Jesus was born a man, death itself has died. But then there's a second half, so that's reaching. We're reaching out with people with the fear of death, abolishing hope. But the second F is the teaching piece, which calls us to imagine his compassion. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and he will find grace to help us, or we will find grace to help us when we need it most. And again, back to AC3, for 20 years we have desired to take every person who responds to Christ to see that that person is completely transformed by the power of Christ. See, it's not just enough that we have this sort of hope for when we die. The promise of Christmas is that right now, because Jesus became a man, he can relate to us, he can understand us, and he has compassion on us. We, we had this song sung for us earlier, so beautiful, Emmanuel. It means literally in the original language, God with us. But you understand it has two ideas, right? There's two layers to that. God with us, literally, God with us. God here among us, walking, human skin. God with us, Jesus on planet Earth. But it also means God with us. God is for you. God is with you. He's in your corner now. God is on your side. God understands you. God is reaching out to you. God has mercy for you because he has compassion for all of us. So that means, friends, there is nothing, no fear, no obstacle, no anxiety, no rejection, no temptation, no problem, no pain that he hasn't first faced before you and to an infinitely worse degree. He understands, you see, because he too has cried. He understands, you see, because he too has suffered. The immutable God, who you sometimes just imagine, distant there in his heaven, has suffered. In the sun, he has suffered. He knows. He understands. 
So because of Christmas, we should come boldly to God, he says, because God gets it. God gets it because of the incarnation, because of Christmas. And then knowing as you come boldly to him that he will have mercy on you to help you. So when you serve, when, when following Jesus is hard in this world of intense pressure and sometimes, yes, ridicule and ostracization and marginalization, and when you come to church and you give your 10% and you go, whoa, I could do some things with that money, and you give of your time and effort and you volunteer in Creek Kids and it's difficult and you're, you're meeting the need of the world with compassion of Jesus. Understand something, the Son of Man knows. For he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gets it. And so what unimaginable comfort. Because he was one of us, he has been there and he's conquered it. He's just not there that he can relate to it. He was there and the Bible says he conquered it. He's been tempted exactly the way you were, but without sin. And he now has power for you in your struggle. So he can help you win over all the trouble that you face today. So, we come to Christmas this year, and as you do, I hope it's not just a flurry of busy preparation and shopping and then five minutes of gift opening. I hope the Advent season for you today, this year, AC3, is full of marvel and mystery and wonder. As you imagine his superiority, the unique Jesus, alone among the competing gods of earth, ready to meet your need. Imagine his, the incarnation, an example that we follow coming up next to trouble in order to fix it. The redemption of Christ, the hope that we hold out that blows away the fear of death in you, I hope. And then finally, the understanding and compassion of Christ, the comfort and power to walk with God's help and mercy no matter what. Let's walk in the incarnation today. Let's pray together. God, I, I thank you. So your marvel, your mystery just surrounds us at Christmas time. And so we pray that the incarnate one would inhabit us. And inhabiting us, we would be the extension of your will on planet Earth. That we would literally be your body, the body of Christ. And we, filled up with all the Holy Spirit, would exemplify Jesus to the people around us. For we have not come across a trouble or a temptation or a trial that you didn't first experience with us and for us. And so we claim your grace. We claim your fear-abolishing hope today. And may this Advent season be unlike any other in the life of my friends, Lord, that we might be filled with all the measure of the hope that can be found only in the, in the Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, AC3, so glad that you're here this morning checking this out. Uh, throughout the month of December, we're giving you a little more time to go about your stuff. Uh, so no extended. Uh, but I'll be around to answer questions if you've got them. And then next week, we keep this going. Imagine us with the world, and we keep this mashup between Christmas and AC3 going on. So we'll see you all next week. Invite a friend. We would love.